Once you get up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good morning. Green. 
Good morning, everybody. It is a busy time of year. We have about 50 people traveling on short-term mission trips this morning. We've got groups coming back from Brazil, flying into Dallas and Houston this morning. We want to be praying for them. And then we've got a team flying out of Houston, heading to Guatemala for the week. So please be in prayer for them, and we will remember them in a few moments. Uh, and uh, we want to greet all. I've heard some, some who are watching on the Internet. Some of our families are vacationing, trying to get out of this heat. And uh, uh, so we're glad that you can watch online. And if you're visiting with us online or in the room, we want to give you a special welcome. We're glad that you could be with us today. We are in the middle, actually towards the end of a study of 1 Samuel. We'll jump into 2 Samuel here in a couple weeks. So if you have a Bible and uh, you want to join us there, we'll be in 1 Samuel a little bit later. But uh, we're glad you're here. And uh, we're, glad, we're glad the rest of y'all are here. Welcome home if this is your spiritual home. Uh, our hope and our prayer this morning is we can encourage you. I do have a couple announcements. If you grab your worship guides, let me just uh, highlight a couple things. Uh, I mentioned that we have uh, people traveling back from Brazil and another group traveling to Guatemala. Uh, we emphasize missions a lot here. Uh, we believe that our calling is to encourage each other and then to go out and tell others about Jesus Christ. So we try to do that here locally as well as internationally and, again, be praying for them. Um, also... Uh, as we near an election, you need to be involved. Uh, you need to vote. And we're not going to tell you how to vote. we got people in this church who are on the left. we got people who are on the right. And uh, you need to vote what God puts in your heart. But you need to be involved. Uh, that's how our country works. And so uh, Sharon Kennedy has graciously, uh, she is a registrar, and she has graciously said she'll set up a few times opportunities for you to register for voting. That will be right in the welcome area uh, by the library if you're interested in that. Uh, please take note of that. That will be immediately following the service. So it will only take you a couple minutes, and, and uh, she'll help you get that done so you can be active in our democracy here in the fall. Again, wherever you stand on the issues, that's, what you need to do is vote what you believe the Holy Spirit would have you vote. Uh, we are not a conservative or liberal church. We're just a church of God's people who are living as aliens and strangers in this culture. So we want to do all we can to bless it. Um, uh, that pretty much does it. Lots of stuff coming up. Next Sunday morning is going to be super cool. We have uh, baptisms. We have communion next Sunday. Uh, I'm going to share with you a video next Sunday that I've been wanting to share for a long time. And if, especially if you are a, a public school teacher or you know one, next Sunday who's a believer, next Sunday will be especially meaningful to you. That's all I'm going to say right now. But I would encourage you. Uh, we got This is kind of the end of the year for a uh, summer for a lot of people because if you're a teacher or an administrator, it all starts up at the beginning of August. So uh, we would encourage you next week to be here and and uh, i know you'll be blessed it's gonna we're gonna take some time off of first samuel next week and and get into that so um, i'm gonna ask our ushers to come forward at this time and uh, we will pray for our service and our time together uh, if you are visiting with us this is the one part of our service that belongs to those of us who attend here regularly we're just glad to have you with us this morning pass the plate as it goes by um, and uh, we'll thank you for being here let's pray lord jesus we love you uh, thank you for uh, allowing us to have a place like this that's air-conditioned and comfortable and we can uh, kind of turn our eyes upon you so that the things of the earth will grow strangely dim. And Lord, this time of the year, there's lots of stuff going on. There's lots of things going through our minds. Um, summer's wonderful, taking vacation, time off with our family, being able to serve you internationally uh, as we have more time available. We think of our teams that are coming back right now from Brazil. As they're flying into both Dallas and Houston, we pray you keep them safe. Uh, we pray that you bring them home, that as they 
uh, readjust and, and just debrief and think through the experiences that you have given them, Father. We pray for those that they were able to touch, that you would draw them to yourself. We pray for the team as they come back, that uh, they would take the things that they learned and be changed by it and, and change us by it. And we, we think of the of the 20-some folks that are heading to uh, Guatemala this morning. They're so excited to get on the plane. They're so excited to get there. We pray you give them strength. We pray you give them courage. That We pray that you would prepare good soil ahead of them so that they can share Christ with others. Father God, thank you for letting us live here on this planet in such a time where we can get all over the globe to tell people that you love them. So uh, make us effective for the kingdom. And now, Lord, as we turn our face back to what you're going to do in this room and on the Internet, we pray, Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have to gather. We pray that you would meet with us. We pray that the words of men would fade away and the words of God would endure forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those whose hope is in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint.
enjoyed very much the title of this series. Um, I know I wrote it, but usually it's just a title. I'm not a big title guy, but uh, to take a look at these stories, it represents well what I'm hearing from a lot of you and what I'm learning personally. Uh, to actually slow down enough and take a look at what it looks like for a man to surrender every part of his life to God or a woman to trust completely in the Lord or to look at other people who are religious but not surrendered. Uh, that We've seen that in this in the study. Um, last week we watched as an unrepentant Saul doesn't get from God what he wants, doesn't get the answers he's looking for, so instead he turns to the demonic. He goes to a medium to find out the information he feels he needs in order to continue on. Uh, we talked uh, last week about how going other places besides God, uh, the God of the universe, how tragic it is. It's easy for us to look at a story like Saul going to the medium and saying, how stupid is that and how foolish. But in our own, in our own power, a lot of times we go to our own things. And Satan um, does his best work, um, not by taking us to mediums or witches. He does our best work by making us religious without surrendering control to the Lord. I want to begin this morning by just making it clear that if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if God is not the one that you run to as your source of forgiveness, hope, your purpose in life, you need to read 1 Samuel 28. Uh, last week I shared with you that uh, most of the time on Sunday morning, and this will be informative for those who are visiting with us, but most of the time when we gather here on Sunday, actually, I, I feel like our time here, according to Ephesians 4, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If you're not a child of God, we're glad you're here, but you need to understand that most of the time we're talking about seeing God as he is and seeing our lives in light of that. And so predominantly we talk to believers while trying to encourage you to give your life to Christ. But last week, uh, well, in that, it would be easy for you to get the idea that living for Christ is hard. It is. But living life without Christ is tragic. Uh, it is hopeless. And at some point in your life, you face a battle that you're not going to win. And that's where Saul was last week. And it is in that moment that your life becomes tragic. There's not enough alcohol. There's not enough sex. There's not enough um, whatever you go to. There's not enough of that thing to keep you alive. There comes a point in everybody's life where they have to ask themselves, do I want to die in my sin? Do I want to go into eternity and deal with this on our own? Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And before I jump into today's text, I just want to beg you to give your life to Christ. Beg you to give your life to Christ. Look, I'm not asking you to become a Baptist. I'm not asking you to go to church every week. That, that's stuff that God grows in you at a later time. I'm simply telling you, you need a Savior. And you know you need a Savior. Three o'clock in the morning, everybody has a reality check. You're not good enough. You're not effective enough. You're not beautiful enough. There's just not enough of you. 
And we all know we need a Savior, and I want you to know that God so loved you that he sent his son to save you. Run to him. And uh, I, I, I understand the cynicism of our culture. I understand the cynicism of the Bible Belt. And having, look, I'm not here to sell Carpenter's way, but I would love to introduce you to him. If you are not his child today, I challenge you to talk to the person you came with, grab somebody out around you and ask them if it's real, or if you want to come, I'll talk to you after, and I'd love to introduce you to my dad, because hope is found in him, right? And if you are God's child this morning, you should be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you all the time. And uh, if you aren't prepared, um, you are more than you know. The Holy Spirit will give you the words at the right time. Um, for those of you who are God's kids, though, this morning's text is for you. It is, uh, well, it's a common phrase that you hear around the church uh, about Christendom, and it is when God opens, closes one door, he often opens another. And uh, this morning's text hits on that. And I'm going to say he doesn't often open another. He always opens another. The problem with being an American or a Western Christian is we don't know where we end and God begins. And much of our talk in the church, much of our talk in history, especially those of us who grew up with Billy Graham, thank God for his ministry, but we thought this was all about getting saved. But Jesus called it being born again. It's born into new life. And that's where the life starts. Salvation is not the end product of the church. Salvation is the beginning of what God does through the church, through the Holy Spirit within us. It's the beginning. And then the rest of our lives, we learn to surrender. The rest of our lives, we do what Chad let us sing... Uh, uh, let us in song this morning, surrendering our, ourselves to him. That is a daily battle because we think in our minds, we believe that we know the path God wants to take us down. And often, truthfully, we have no idea. Somehow, like Saul, we find comfort in our own understanding. Makes us feel like we can hold on tight. And boy, that works for a while, but it is a dangerous game to depend on. Because before you know it, you're religious without God. You're uh, and, and that's what scares me about much of what we do in the Bible Belt. There's a book for everything you're going through and three steps to solving it. And unfortunately, the last chapter of the book is the only one that talks about surrendering yourself to God. I want you to know this morning that God's goal for your life is not to make you moral or smarter. It's to make you His and to use you for His glory. And the only way that's accomplished is when we surrender to the Lord. With that in mind, I want us to pray and ask God uh, to speak to us this morning. This is an awesome text. It's such a good text. I know I say that every week, and I'm right every week, but, but I'm especially right this morning. So let's just pray. Let's just bow our heads this morning, and uh, would you talk to your father for a second? Even if you're at home and you're watching on the internet or on your phone, would you just tell God that you want to hear from him this morning through, this, through his word? For those of you who don't even know if God exists, I want to challenge you and to be courageous enough to say, if you are there, I want, to, I want to know you're there. I want you to talk to me today. Every one of us have a thing that we're thinking about this morning. We carried it into church. We're carrying it home. Maybe it's a marriage or it's a child issue or you're just down. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're ill. I want you in your mind, I want you to take that thing and I want you to set it before the cross. Just give it to God. Now I want you to pray for me. That the words that I say would not be Mark's words, but God's words. 
Give us ears to hear what you have to say this morning, Father. For every one of us here this morning are your children who who have accepted your offer to forgive sin. We want to hear from you. So, Lord Jesus, teach us a little bit more about you in light of us. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 29, verse 1 begins with the entire Philistine army is now mobilized at Aphek, and the Israelites camped at the spring of Jezreel. Chronologically, and okay, I I know that I kind of build each week, obviously, because we're in context, builds upon the week before. So I want to remind you that last week is when when Saul, and I've already mentioned this, but just to keep you chronologically on space, because this is important. Uh, Last week, Saul uh, finds himself with the Hebrew army standing uh, on the hillside, overlooking a valley, and on the other side of the hill is the Philistine army with tens and thousands of people. And you remember that Saul panics because he realizes he can't beat them. So he goes to God, and as God had promised because of his sin, God remains silent. And so Saul panics, and he sends his men and takes, who take him to a medium to seek out, to raise the dead, to raise Samuel from the dead, to seek wisdom from him. Well, this chapter begins like three or four or five days before that time. This, is, this, is a, this actually goes back in time a little bit, and while that's going on with Saul, this is going on with David and the Philistine army. Saul has yet to travel by night to Endor to meet the medium. David and his 600 warriors and their families have been living in Philist, uh, the, the Philistine town of Ziklag at the pleasure of the Philistine king Achish. He and his warriors have spent their days, if you remember, raiding cities. They're taking their wealth. They're killing the people in those towns. He's taking their wealth, and he's coming back and giving a large portion of it to Achish. Remember that? And he's telling him, he's lying to him by saying that he's raiding Hebrew cities, when in fact he's not raiding Hebrew cities. He's raiding friends of the Philistines, but he's killing them all, so Achish has no idea. Achish, uh, the Philistine king, has decided to attack now the Hebrews. And in chapter 29, it opens as they're all heading towards the battlefield. Verse 2. As the Philistine rulers were leading their troops in groups of hundreds and thousands. Now you get an idea of just how many there were. I want to remind you that the Hebrew army at this time was a poor army. They didn't have weaponry except sticks. This was not a group of people with iron. The Philistines had iron. The Philistines had armament. They were warriors. The Hebrews, although trained to some degree, were not strong warriors. David had been their great battle leader up to this point. And so we have the Philistines heading toward the Hebrew battle lines with hundreds and thousands. David and his men marched at the rear with King Achish. But the Philistine commanders demanded, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish told them, this is David, the servant of King Saul of Israel. He's been with me for years, and I've never found a single fault in him from from the day he arrived until today. The context here is great. And in Hebrew, there's some turn of phrases that I want to point out for you this morning that are actually pretty cynical. But the, the Philistine tribal leaders are suspicious and actually pretty defiant in the face of their king. I mean, they're pushing back. Why is this Hebrew coming with us? And they actually had good reason for it. 
Because if you remember back in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, there had been Hebrews that were living among the Philistines at that time that promised to go into battle with them. And as soon as the Hebrews show up on the battlefield, the Hebrew warriors living among the Philistines start killing Philistines. And it tells us that thousands were killed because the Philistines didn't know who were enemies and who were their friends. Verse 4, But the Philistine commanders were now angry. Send him back to the town you've given him. And in the Hebrew, they are shooting Achish right in the face with this. They demanded him. He can't go into battle with us. What if he turns against us in battle and becomes our adversary? Is there any better way for him to reconcile himself with his master than by handing our heads over to him? Take a deep breath and think about what they're saying. Who is it that, that they're talking about here? Somebody answer. David, right? And his 600 men. Has David ever handed the head of a Philistine over to a Hebrew king? Absolutely. David and Goliath. And they haven't forgotten. In fact, look at the next. Verse 5. Isn't this the same David about whom the women of Israel sing in, in their uh, dances? Saul has killed his thousands. David his ten thousands. Do you remember when those songs were written? During the Philistine wars. This, this is ironic because the Hebrew is really interesting. It's alliteration. It's, uh, it's, it's throwing back in his face. His warriors have actually handcuffed the king Achish by saying, look, he's going to hand our heads over. And you remember that David not only killed Goliath, cuts his head off, takes Goliath's spear, puts it on a pole, and walks around it for a week until Saul actually calls him into, uh, into his tent to meet with him to find out who he is and to give him a position in his court. And he's still carrying the head of Goliath. These men knew that. They knew that. And what is interesting, to be fair, this guy that King Achish was inviting to fight with them was responsible for killing tens of thousands of their warrior friends. He was responsible for killing their warrior champion, Goliath, for carrying his head around with the staff. And now he's at the back standing with the king. The king was always at the rear for protection. He had made David and his men his, per, his uh, personal guards. And this, what's interesting about this is, if you think in context, and we've talked about this before, whose sword is David carrying? Goliath's. And his men are now have now lived for a year and a half inside of Philistine territory. They've run the town, and so they're all probably adorned in, uh, in Philistine army garb. They look like the Philistines, they just don't have Philistine hearts. Can you imagine what these generals, warlords actually, this isn't like the American military. These are warlords who own cities and towns that come together under the Philistine flag. They have submitted themselves to Achish because he could defeat any of them, and they decide together to defeat their enemies. And now they're going to war against the Hebrews, who for the past 15, 20, 25 years, they haven't been able to defeat because of some little boy who defeated their, their giant, who keeps coming against them. And now Achish has decided that because a year and a half relationship with this guy, he's going to all of a sudden become their great warrior. They're not happy. It makes sense why they're angry. So Achish finally summoned David and he said to him, I swear by the Lord that you have been a trustworthy ally. I think you should go with me in battle, for I've never found a single flaw in you from the day you arrived until today. But the other Philistine rulers won't hear of it. Please don't be upset with them, but go back quickly. Between David's lies as to who he was raiding and killing and buying off Achish with, with the plunder of these defeats, 
Achish loves this guy. Verse 8, what have I done to deserve this treatment, David says. What have you ever found in your servant that I can't go fight the enemies of the Lord, my, of my Lord the king? But Achish insisted, as far as I'm concerned, you're an angel. I know, it's getting a little weird, isn't it? As far as I'm concerned, you, uh, you're as perfect as an angel of God. But the Philistine commanders are afraid to, uh, to have you with them in battle. Now get up early in the morning and leave with your men as soon as it gets light. Now keeping it real, most historical theologians, most people that we would study do not believe that David is going to take on the Hebrews. But in defense of the human author, it doesn't tell us if he is or not. We really don't know. I mean, we can think from the story of David not killing Saul and not wanting to take on Hebrews and how he treats his fellow Hebrew people and wanting to go live with them again, that he wouldn't take them on. But we really don't know. Because David's response here is an angry response. How can you treat me like this? The truth, nobody really knows. But what we do know is that David in his heart appears to have figured out the plan that he needs to take. Whether or not he is going to defend his lord, the king Saul of Hebrews, or he's going to defend Achish in a battle, or he's going to defeat him, he was prepared to go into battle. Maybe you've experienced what David must be feeling at this time. Have you ever felt, uh, faced a difficult series of choices and you agonize over it for days, maybe weeks, and finally you make a decision and you start acting on that decision only to have God slam a door in your face? That's what this was like. In verse uh, Proverbs 16, 9, David and Bathsheba's son would write this. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. It's Proverbs. This story is what it looks like. This part of the text is what it looks like to set your plans, but God, have God determine your steps. And I'm going to show you in the rest of the story that while all this is going on, in a few moments, I'm going to show you that God is doing something totally cool over here. Because God did not want David to fight in this war. God wanted David to fight in a different war, and you'll see why in a couple moments. The problem with those of us who are children of God is we don't often know when we should act and when we should wait. Surely God doesn't want us to sit in the middle of a worship center and wait on him all the time. Scripture doesn't teach that. He's given, us a, he's given us a brain to use and he's given us a will and David is using it. He sets a plan. So what do we do? The good news is the New Testament has instructions on that. James chapter 4 in verses 13 to 16 tells us how to live like that. Look here you who say today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there for a year. We'll do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will look like tomorrow? Your life is like a morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. The fact remains that God does expect you to move. He expected David to make plans in the best of his ability. David wants to move back into Hebrew territory. David makes a decision that that the author doesn't tell us what that decision is. But he makes a decision. And acting on that, God says no. One of the more common questions I get as a pastor is <clears throat> from college kids who want to seek out how do you find the right college if you have a choice of two or three, or a job, or how do I know what's, how to find a spouse, or who the right woman is that God would have me marry. I want to walk with him. And we ask those questions as if, as if there's a specific answer, and I'm not sure that there is. 
Sometimes God wants you to, mark, uh, to walk forward knowing that he can change your steps at any time in any place. I know that's not satisfying to an American. I know it's really unsatisfying to Texans. But it is the way God works. Another question that we talk about a lot on Wednesday nights is why doesn't God just tell us where he wants us to go? Wouldn't it be easier? And the answer is yes. But we wouldn't trust him if he gave us that answer. You see, God wants us dependent on him. He wants us crying out to him. He wants us saying, what do you want me to do? And if he gave us all the answers, we'd see him in heaven. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to do exactly what I'm supposed to. I'm going to, I'm going to head in this direction. But this is an act of faith because in faith, relationship grows. This was never just about you and I getting to heaven. This was never about eternal life alone. This is about having a personal, intimate relationship with God. And that requires walking with Him every moment of every day. And I don't mean sitting in your room just studying the Bible. I'm talking about interacting with Him, having a relationship with Him, crying out to Him, making Him part of your everyday decisions. As much as we think we have things figured out, as convinced as we become of the path that God has set us on, we must always leave room for our Lord, our dad, to redirect our steps. Verse 11 of 1 Samuel 29, let's move on. So David and his men headed back to the land of the Philistines while the Philistines' army went on to Jezreel. This is about a 55-mile walk. It's going to take them three days. They are moving along. It's going to tell us in a moment that it takes three days to actually get back to Ziklag. That had to be one long walk. You've taken it. You've taken it. It may not have been a 55-mile walk, but you've, had, you've been confident that God was going to open a certain door in your life, maybe give you a job, or maybe you were engaged, or maybe you were going to have children. You had a wonderful plan for your life, and God slammed that door shut, and you found yourself walking 55 miles, wondering what's going on. And then, of course, once we realize that God has a plan, we start asking ourselves, why did I think, what's wrong with me? Why did I think I was supposed to do that? This is a faith walk, my friends. This is a faith walk. Verse 1 of chapter 30. Three days later, when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag, they found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag. They crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. They had carried off the women and children and everyone else without uh, killing anyone. I mean, not only does David not go to war and fulfill the plans that he was sure he should do, but now he goes home and finds out they've raided his town and it's gone. A little history is important here too. God had instructed King Saul back in chapter 15 that he was supposed to destroy this town. The Amalekites were supposed to be killed. You'll remember this story because this is the one where God says, I don't want you to take anything out of that town. I want you to kill everybody and I want you to destroy all of their animals and I want you to bury their wealth. I don't want one penny from this town to come into the Hebrew hands. And you remember Saul's response to that was? He goes into battle, and he and his warrior leaders decide what things they want to keep, what's of value. He disobeys, and it's at that point that Samuel is told to tell Saul that God is now removing his spirit from him. He is no longer the anointed king. He would be allowed to remain on the throne, but God would not speak to him. God would not direct him. These are the people that they were fighting. If Saul had obeyed God, and just did what he said, this battle would not have happened. This, uh, as I was thinking about it this week, I want to remind you that Saul was a religious man, but obedience to God was completely dependent upon how he felt about God's orders. I want you to know 
that that's the crisis of Christianity, it's crisis of, of being religious and not surrendered to God. When we only obey God when it makes sense to us, He's not our Lord. Our reason is. Do you understand? If the only time we obey is when it makes sense to us, if the only time we bow the knee is when we do well, if the only time we say God is good is when our diagnosis of cancer is overturned, then we really don't trust Him. We really don't trust Him. We trust Him as long as He's good to us. We trust Him as long as He gets us what we want. And then who is really God? I mean, this is an important thing to realize, that Saul was religious, he just wasn't surrendered. David, on the other hand, is absolutely, well, I'll show you that in a moment. But when it didn't make sense or was inconvenient to Saul's plans, Saul simply ignores or disobeys God's command and does his own thing. This crisis, this destruction that David and his men face upon returning home is the result of Saul's disobedience and sin against God. And I want to give a side note here. There is no such thing as private sin. If you are into porn, late at night, and nobody in the world knows, it affects your marriage. There is no such thing as secret sin. There are things as secretive sin where nobody knows what you're doing, but it affects everybody. In fact, it affects this church. If Carpenter's Way is your home, if there's 900 of us that say Carpenter's Way is our home, and only 850 of us are surrendered to the Lord, that means we are 50 people short of being as spiritually surrendered as we're supposed to be. And if our church, if your family, if there are four people in your family and one of you is not surrendered, that means your family is running 25% less effective for the king than he designed it to be. And if your family is running 25% less effective and we have a church that's 25% less effective, this community is 25% less effective for the kingdom as God intended. And if this community is not running on every cylinder, if the body of Christ is not surrendered to the Lord, that means this region of our state is not surrendered to the Lord. And if this region of our state is not surrendered to the Lord, then that means our state is not surrendered to the Lord. And if our state is not surrendered to the Lord, that means our country is not the way it should be. While we're often politically yelling at the world for acting like the lost... The truth is, most of us, by our behavior and often our rhetoric, aren't surrendered to the Lord. We're panicking because it's not going the way we think it should go. And in turn, I really believe there's like, I think there's like 57%, something like that, that claim to be born again evangelical believers in this country. Can you imagine how different this country would be if 57% of our country actually walked with God, actually trusted Him? And I know it sounds crazy, but the church, because we can't be because we have become spiritually ineffective, we now have replaced the, the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of our churches and the lives of people around us with programs. We try to buy the world with, with the world's processes. We try to entertain them. We try to reach them by giving them stuff. And I want you to know it's not working. It's not working. The only thing that will affect this culture for Jesus Christ is the body of Christ surrendering every one of us I have a fear that as we've been reading this, and I know you've been with me on this because I'm getting a lot of email from many of you and texts. But the scary thing to me is we look a lot more like Saul than we do David. Don't we? We do. 
we, 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 name, we, we, we bless God's name when something good happens. And when it doesn't, we look for a medium, a horoscope, a good-feeling thing. We buy a book that tells us happy thoughts that may or may not be true. The effect of personal disobedience by the king is devastating to the nation of Israel. Verse 3. When David and his men saw the, in ru the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. David's two wives, Ahanoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those who had been captured. David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters and they began to talk of stoning him. <laughs> Every day was not a good day for David. And his men start to revolt. But the difference between Saul and David is that last line. Saul goes to a medium and David found strength in the Lord. Please note, the difference between David and Saul is when Saul faces a crisis, he keeps looking for someone to tell him what he wants to hear. David finds his strength in the Lord. That's why God said, that's what it looks like to be a man after my heart. Not because everything went his way, but Saul kept looking for someone to shepherd him. Saul kept looking for someone to tell him happy thoughts. Saul kept looking for someone to give him counsel, even to the point where he would go to God's man and worship him. And I've been trying the last few weeks to warn you of all the people that Saul could have raised from the dead. He could have talked to Lucifer himself, but he doesn't. He tries to raise God's prophet. He ignores God and goes to his prophet. Now, I know somebody in this room who's thinking about the story is saying, well, God was silent. God was only silent as to what he should do. If Saul would have gotten on his face before God and repented, God would have accepted him. But he doesn't. Because Saul's not interested in walking with God. Saul is interested in walking with himself. How about us? What are we more passionate about? David found his strength in the Lord. Saul was his own shepherd. David wrote this. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. All that I need. On this very day, when David finds his strength in the Lord, it is believed by most theological historians that this was the day that Saul would go and find the, the witch of Endor. This very day, talking about parallel, Saul looks for uh, a dead saint. David goes to God. Where do you go to find your strength? Where'd you go this last week? A bottle? Your spouse? Your favorite author? Some of those may be fine, but they're not answers. Run to God. Run to God. Verse 7. Then David said to Abathar the priest, bring me the ephod. Uh, an ephod was the prayer garment of the priest. Uh, on the ephod, there were rocks that they would often go to the Lord with and would roll them and God would speak. It tells us in the Torah, God would speak through them and give them direction. Um, some of you are going to notice this, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. This is the first time in quite a few chapters that we have David actually seeking God through the priest. Have you noticed? He's kind of gotten away from this. 
But here he is with men about to uprise against him. His two wives are gone. His city is burned to the ground. His, they are in absolute loss. He can't return to the Hebrew territory that he wants to live. And now he doesn't have another home, and he's wondering where he's going to go. So he turns to Abathar the priest, tells him to bring him the ephod. He brings it. Then David asks the Lord, should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord said to him, yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. So David and his 600 men set out, and they came to the brook Bezor. But 200 men were too exhausted to cross the brook. So David continued the pursuit with 400 men. This guy's life is getting worse. 200 of 600 of his warriors can't continue. Verse 11. Along the way, they found an Egyptian man in a field and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. They also gave him part of a fig cake and two clusters of raisins, for he hadn't had anything to eat or drink for three days and nights. Before long, his strength returned. To whom do you belong, and where do you come from, David asked him. Well, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite, he replied. Bing! My master abandoned me three days ago because I was sick. We were on our way back from raiding the Carathites in the Negev, the territory of Judah and the land of Caleb, and we had just burned Ziklag. Will you lead me to this band of raiders, David asked. The young man replied, if you take an oath in God's name that you will not kill me or give me back to my master, I will guide you to them. All right, so you got to get this, okay? I know I'm going slow and him hawing a little bit this morning, but I want you to get this. After all this stuff happens, he's going go to go to battle with the Philistines against the Hebrews. He gets turned back by the generals. He goes back to his land, walks 55 miles back to his city, finds his city burned out. Everybody's been kidnapped. He, uh, his men are about to stone him. He cries out to the Lord. God says, I want you to take these people on. He tells his men to march. It does not say that his men are on his team at this point. But 600 of them start to march with him. They submit. 200 stop because they're too tired. We don't know if they're really tired or not, but they stop. 200 stop. He's got 400 men. And in the middle of nowhere, he just happens to run into a sick Egyptian who, by the way, isn't just any slave because slave masters don't tell their people where they're going to be staying at the night. This has to be a uniquely highly powered slave because he knows where to take David and his men. Out of nowhere, all of a sudden, this just happens. Once again, from 30,000 feet, while the Philistines are still marching to battle in preparation to take on the Hebrews, while Saul is preparing the Hebrew nation for war against the Philistines and talking to witches, while David is trying to figure out what he should do in this war where he's marching and he's not sure even where he's going, God was at work causing an Egyptian servant, a high-powered Egyptian servant, with the exact information he would need to give David directions to the battle, and he makes him sick. Now, there are some in this church who like to push back when I talk about God causing sickness because they don't want to believe that about God. But here's your example. This is either uncanny chance, which I don't believe in and neither do you, or God caused this guy to be sick at the right place. Now, remember, there's a lot of paths where they're going. They don't even know where they're going. They're marching in the direction of the Amalekites. They don't have a city. They don't have a town. It doesn't tell us any of that. They're marching, and they just happen to run into an Egyptian slave that worked for the Amalekites. David's compassionate enough to feed this guy and get him back to strength. And in the conversation, he introduces himself as a slave of the Amalekites. Remember, this isn't an Amalekite. He's an Egyptian. David had no reason to manipulate this. 
but God was directing. God was sovereign, even in this man's sickness. Right servant, sick at the right moment, left behind at the right place. Not a coincidence. And this is not the first time. David had no idea what God was going to do. <clears throat> the <clears throat> psalmist Asaph wrote a psalm that I love. It's Psalm 77. Listen to, listen to his heart as I read it, and then listen to his conclusion. I cry out to God, yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed with hands lifted towards the heavens, but my soul wasn't comforted. I think of God and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. Ever been there? He just said God doesn't answer. Verse four, you don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed to even pray. I think of the good old days, long since ended, mission trips and youth retreats. I added that. Times when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I searched my soul and pondered the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. But then I recall all that you have done, O Lord. I want to pause for a second. Every one of us in this room have felt this at one point or another. We don't often say it because we're scared to, to verbalize it. But every one of us in this room has faced, in some, faced something at a time where we started wondering if God was really there or we were on his team. That's just part of, the, that's part of the Christian experience. That's part of the saint experience. I mean, listen to this guy. This is a psalm that would be read before the nation of Israel. Verse 11. I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. But then I recall all you have done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. Just pause for a second. He remembers back to a time, and he'll, he'll mention it in a second. But maybe you remember back when walk, God walked closely. You could feel his presence. That was God walking with you. Well, I want it again. Maybe you don't deserve it again. Maybe he doesn't want you to have it again. You know, as you grow up, the warm, fuzzy feelings of childhood go away. I've been told by a bunch of you, this is the week Zach moves out of my house. We're moving to U-Haul. He's moving to Fort Worth. Anna's three weeks following her first apartment. Julie and I are going to be in that big old house alone, and isn't she lucky? And you know, I've, I've heard from a bunch of you, it's going to be fine. Someday you'll have grandkids. It's wonderful. I've been encouraged by many of you. And then most of you have said, but it's never quite the same. You know, there's something about growing up. You know, when you first came to God, remember that, that, that wonderful moment when you met him and, and, you, and, and you were forgiven of your sin. And then maybe you, went, you were in discipleship and you grew in that rush and we spend our lives longing for that rush. But you realize if you felt that rush every day, it wouldn't be different. It wouldn't be unique. It wouldn't have been special. You realize that mountaintop experiences, spiritual mountaintop experiences, are just that, spiritual mountaintop experiences. If we had them every day, they would be called spiritual plateaus. No, we call spiritual plateaus that normal life. That's because it's normal life. God shows himself amazingly big when you get saved so that you can trust him later when he doesn't tell you what's coming next. When he doesn't tell you 
what is around the corner. Because as you mature in your relationship with God, you should learn to trust Him. Isn't that the way it is in your marriage? When you first get married, you're very delicate. You, uh, you care for each other. And I, I, know, I know that the romantic nature of our culture says you need to get back to doing what you did at first and all. But you know, there are things that you feel and experience when you first get married that can't be reproduced. And they shouldn't be reproduced. Because something better comes along as you've been married, even if some of the emotion goes away. Trust. Comfort. Knowing each other. Taking care of each other. When you're first married, you're kind of scared to take care of each other because you're kind of learning how to do that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, you guys are staring at me and it's making me nervous. Relationships do mature. And we all want to be 14 again. Every one of us want that feeling we had at mission camp or, or in India. Every one of us want that. But that's not reality. That's a special birthday present from the King of Kings. Real life is working and serving and, and being out there in the world and ministering and trusting and proving to the world that God can be trusted. That's real life. And too often in the church, I fear that we're trying to create an emotional upheaval so we can walk out of here going, whoo, whoo, I feel so good. You know, that feeling goes away when the waitress pours coffee on you at lunch. It's just a feeling. But God can be trusted. Why? Because back in the day, he proved himself to be trustworthy. Verse 13, O oh God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? You are God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations. By your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. I want to remind you that he is writing this while he's frustrated and wondering where God is. He isn't writing this in some upheaval of great emotion. He's writing this in his frustration. Verse 16, when the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. The cloud poured down rain. The thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your road led through the sea. Your pathway through the mighty waters. A pathway no one knew was there. As the Jews, as the Hebrews and Moses are standing at the edge of the Red Sea, they are certain they're going to die at the hand of the Egyptians or the drowning in the sea. And God opened the waters. And if he did it once, he'll do it again. We just have to believe that he's got it under control. He does have it under control. Psalm 37, verses 23 through 24. Look at this. Look at that. Read it for yourselves. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble. For some of you this morning, that describes your emotion, your spiritual condition right now. I'm stumbling. Though you stumble, you will never fall, for the Lord holds you by his right hand. Well, I don't feel him. I don't feel him. Not, not conditional on you if you feel him. Imagine if you said that to your spouse every February 14th. I know we've been married for 32 years, but I don't feel your love. Could you imagine living with that? Some of you do. Because we buy into emotion. I want to feel your love every day. Could you imagine having to constantly tell your spouse how much you love them? It's a good thing to do that, but having to prove it on top of that? 
We'd run out of money. There aren't enough flowers. Eventually, a rose would have to be a different flower. You're not very creative, sweetheart. Bring me a different kind of flower. It's demanding. It's self-seeking. It isn't serving. You see, God designed marriage so that we serve the other person, not so that they serve us. And I want to remind you that God designed you and left you here so that you can serve him. Remember, you are his masterpiece. So is David. And he redeemed us today in the New Testament under the New Covenant so that we could do the things that he prepared for us to do beforehand. Remember that verse? It's Ephesians 2.10. You see, the truth is, you are not here to, be, uh, to, to purely be loved on. That's what heaven's going to be for. You'll get there. You are here to serve others. You are here to reach beyond your political uh, affiliation, to reach beyond your socioeconomic status, to, bring up, to actually reach beyond your sexual orientation and share with others that there is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. And I mean salvation. There is no hope outside of Jesus. You see, the world can drink themselves over and over. They can keep drinking. They can find new drinks, heavier drinks, stronger drinks. They can go to more movies every week, buy bigger TVs. They can have better cars. They can do what they do, but at some point, every car crashes. We can't forget that as the church. At some point, everybody realizes that they are in trouble physiologically, and they need to deal with eternity. The only question we ask as God's servants once we've loved people is, do you really want to die in your sins? You don't have to. Remember that, Daryl? Daryl shared that question with us a few months ago on Tuesday morning, and it's been going through my head. I make it so difficult. I try to defend creation, and I, I want to explain why bad happens in the world. And that's not even the question. It's a diversion from Satan. The question that we ask the lost is, do you really want to go into eternity without having been forgiven? Because you know you're a sinner. Many do. And we move on. But I want you to know as God's child, God delights in the very details of your lives. And though you will stumble like Asaph, like David, like David's men, you will not fall because he holds you by your right hand. So out of nowhere in the middle of a de desert, God made an Egyptian slave, the exact one with the information that David would need to get to the right battlefield, God's GPS guy. And he gets him sick perfectly in the path of a compassionate, caring David who would feed him and minister to him on his path to find those who stole and kidnapped his people. Only to discover that while the Philistines are throwing the, him off the battlefield with the Hebrews, that that God is actually moving him into a different battlefield because God was closing one door and opening a bigger door. Verse 16, So he led the servant David to them, and they found the Amalekites spread out across the fields, eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amount of plunder they had taken from the Philistines in the land of Judah. That's code for they were wasted. That makes war really easy. David and his men rushed in among them and slaughtered them throughout the night and the entire next day until evening. Think it was a big group? 400 of David's men take two days, a day and a half to defeat these guys. None of the Amalekites escaped except 400 young men who fled on camels. That must have been something to see. David got back everything the Amalekites had taken and he rescued his two wives. Nothing was miss missing, great or small son or daughter or anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He also recovered all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock. This plunder belongs to David, they said. We're about to learn our next lesson about a man whose heart belongs to God. 
So God takes him off of one battlefield that he was sure to fight. Who knows if he's going to fight for the Hebrews or against the Hebrews, but he takes him off that battlefield, takes him home, breaks his heart by allowing his people to be kidnapped. Why? Because God wants the Amalekites to be dealt with, and in order to get David to fight the Amalekites, he needs to get them to attack his camp. So God allows his people to hurt to get David. I mean, you can ask yourself, just like we did with Joseph, was it a good or bad day when David and his men show up in, the, in Ziklag and find out that they're gone? Well, it's a bad day. Are you sure? I mean, would they ever have gone up against the Amalekites if they hadn't have taken everything? Of course not. God wanted the Amalekites dead. So David starts with his men, and they move out into the desert. And in the middle of the desert, they find a guy starving to death. He's sick. David feeds him. The guy gives them directions to the camp. He defeats them. They take everything, small and large. They don't lose one thing because that's what God had planned for them. Amazing. Verse 21. Then David returned to the brook of Bezor and met up with the 200 men who had been left behind because they were too exhausted to go with him. They went out to meet David and his men, and David greeted them joyfully. But some evil troublemakers among David's men, if you're a leader, there's always a Judas. Side note. If you're a leader, there's always a Judas. If you're David, there's always evil men. Quit trying to build a perfect team. It'll never happen. Walk with God. But some evil troublemakers among David's men said, they didn't go with us, so they can't have any of the plunder we recovered. Give them their, uh, give them their wives and children and tell them to be gone. But David said, no, my brothers, don't be selfish with, what's that next line? What the Lord has given us. He has kept us safe and helped us defeat the band of raiders that attacked us. Who will listen when you talk like this? We share and share alike, those who go to battle and those who guard the equipment. From then on, David made this decree and regulation for Israel, and it is still followed to this day. Here's a sidebar. When you believe that God has given you everything you have, it's easy to give away. You realize that that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the principle of tithing in the Old Covenant. It's the principle of cheerful giving in the New Testament. The reason that we take an offering isn't just because that's what churches do, but because the principle is two things. Number one, for the person giving, and by the way, periodically somebody says, let's just put boxes in the back and, and not do it during the worship service. You realize that giving is part of worship. It not only says to everybody around you, I'm going to share, but it says to yourself, this is not mine anyway. You see, too often we come at giving by believing that that's our money and we're done with everything else we want to do, then we give what's left over. It's actually supposed to be the opposite. Since God has given me everything, I'm going to give back from the first things he's given me. You understand that? Even if you don't believe it, you understand what I'm saying, right? You see, our culture says, you work, you get. God says, I'll tell you how to work, I'll give you. But too often we give back to the church or these men, for instance, to the others, the other 200 men, and you're going to see that this is just the beginning of what David gives away from this wealth. But the truth is, you don't own anything if God doesn't give it to you. Do you realize how sovereign God is? We all understand that here, but we've got to start believing it. You see, part of our problem is we have Saul's heart. Saul's heart says, if I can figure out what to do, I win. If I only push this button this way or I turn the crank that way, God says, no, I will turn all the cranks. 
even if he's going into battle. And we all know that David and his men could have wreaked some serious havoc on whoever they fought. But God didn't want them fighting with the Philistines that day or the Hebrews. He wanted them fighting the Amalekites a week later. What does God have you fighting? Everything you have around you is God's in the first place. You know, um, Julie's been sharing with me some things she's been reading lately. Um, and I, and I, I don't have time to get into the whole thing, but the basic concept is that our hearts long for something permanent right now, something we can depend on, something safe. And what she's been saying is that the only safe place is heaven. Right now we need to walk with God, win or lose. You see, part of our problem and part of our fear and part of our depression is even if you accomplish your own goals in life, it's not enough to satisfy your soul. It's just never going to be enough. You see, when God took you into his family, you declared him Lord, and he will take nothing less than Lord. Or you're just religious, and it's not going to work. We've got to get to the place where we actually give ourselves, every part of us, including everything we own. Look what he does from here. Verse 26, when he arrived at Ziklag, David sent part of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends. Here is a present for you, taken from the Lord's enemies, he said. These, uh, the gifts were sent to the people of the following towns David had visited. Bethel, ramoth Negev, Jeddar, Eror, uh, Sifmoth, Esthoma. Um, here's what's interesting about those towns. Only one of them exists today. We don't even know where they're at. But these were where tribes of Hebrews were living in Hebron, the other places David and his men had been visiting. David sent it to them because God owned all of it and it wasn't his to keep. What are we hoarding? This is what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. Where do we look for direction? Who is your shepherd? Even if you say it's God, look at the last seven days of your life and ask yourself, who has been leading you? Where did you go for comfort? Where did God close a door and open a new one? Or where has God closed a door and you're freaking out because you need another door open? Where are you lacking trust? Sometimes, like Asaph, you have to say, where are you? But I remember where you've been and I'm not looking back. Do we believe still that God really has this? If we say we do, we've got to live like it. We've got to give like it. We've got to serve like it. Psalm 121, and then I'm done. I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? No. My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. He will not let you stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. The Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as your protective shade. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord keeps you from all harm and watches over your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now and forever. Upon whom do you look for help? When you have a win. Upon whom do you give credit for the win? Let's close in prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning,
What is it right now that's keeping you from being fully surrendered to God? What's that thing you're scared about? What's that thing you're angry about? What are you frustrated with? What do you feel injustice has been done to you? What's that thing? I want you to list, I want you to name it in your head. What door has God closed that you find frustrating? You got it? You got that thing in your head? If you do, look up at me. That thing. That thing in your head. If you can't look up at me, keep thinking. There's something. What are you scared of? What wakes you up at 3 o'clock in the morning? What are you proud of yourself about and you forgot that God did it? Now, give it back to him. Dear God, you know what everybody's thinking. So take it. Help us trust you. And may we never, ever take it back. Make us like David and not like Saul. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, next week is going to be phenomenal. You want to be here next week. It's going to be so good, like, like really, really good. So you want to be here next week? We have four baptisms, really good, four baptisms. We're going to have communion together. We're going we're gonna, to uh, just be here next week. If you know a teacher that needs some encouragement, they're scared about the school year, make sure they're here. Uh, and I know some of you homeschool. I hope it encourages you too, but you'll see why I say that next week. Uh, love you. Have a wonderful day. Bible study is going to start in about seven minutes.